Bibles, uh, grab them and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9. Now we're going to start in the middle of Hebrews 9, and uh, then we'll jump back to uh, verse 1 here in just a moment. But before we jump into the text, I want you to take a look at a video. Uh, Yasmina, who led us in our call to worship, we asked her a question, and we asked her if she'd film it for us to just hear a bit of her testimony the question is this, what does freedom in Christ mean to you? And so as you hear her response, we'd love for you just to think about your own response. What does freedom in Christ mean to you? Uh, this, is, this is how Yasmina answered, uh, answered the question. Good morning, everyone. This week, Craig asked me to answer the question, what does living in freedom with Christ look like? And for me, it looks like living every day, making decisions in order to honor and serve God. But at the same time, even if you mess up, he'll always be there for you and love you and you'll be forgiven when you repent. I don't know if you caught all of that. I got to watch that a few times this week. It's so beautiful what she said. I think it's so right. It's honoring God in your everyday ordinary life. And when you mess up, it's receiving the forgiveness that Jesus has come to bring. What does freedom in Christ mean to you? What does that look like for you? What does that sound like for you? Freedom in Christ. We're actually not going to find that phrase, freedom in Christ, in the text that we're looking at today. But living free in Christ is one of the primary lessons of this text. So we'll start in the middle, then we'll jump back to the beginning. Hebrews 9, this is verse 13 through verse 15, the middle of the chapter, says this. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And then verse 15, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promise internal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So reference real quick to the first covenant. That's the old uh, Mosaic covenant. That's the covenant that uh, was brought to us through Moses. Uh, all of the rituals, all the sacrifices, all of these things uh, that you had to hold on to with really extreme specificity. I can't say that word. That's how extreme it is. We had to, you had to really hold on to these laws, um, these rules, and the new covenant, uh, the one established by Jesus in the upper room, rests totally on his love and grace. So there's these two covenants that are talking about. Uh, we're going to go back to the very beginning and hear a little bit more about the regulations of the, or the, the, the sacrifice that happened with the first covenant. And then it'll point to the beauty and the glory of Jesus being so much more than, than, these, than these things. So uh, verse 1 down through verse 10. The first covenant 
had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark of the Covenant, the gold jar of manna, or excuse me, this Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant, and above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail right now. There's a lot of detail right there. Anyway, he goes on. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered, the regular, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, the sins that the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations, applying until the time of the new order. Uh, there's a lot going on here, a lot of details. The writer is given this really high value of the glory of the old tabernacle. It sounds like he's even impressed by the orderliness of everything in the tabernacle. And then these next couple of verses He's going to write to sort of demonstrate the greater glory of the new order. We heard that reference there at the end. The greater, the greater glory of the new order or deeper still, the new covenant. This is just an aside. Just want to say it really, really quickly. The writer uses the tabernacle as his example, not the temple. I find that really interesting. It was the tabernacle that was this sort of tent that kind of came along with the Israelites as they moved through the, as they moved through the wilderness. The tabernacle preceded the, temp, the temple. I think the writer is just really drawing on the richness and history of the old covenant only to better glorify what Jesus had done. So here's the next couple of verses. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are not now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not part of this creation. He's talking about heaven. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining our eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Lots going on here, but I just want to highlight one section. You probably heard it a couple of times, talked about uh, this reference to the clearing of or the cleansing of our conscience. So I want you to think about that for just a moment. The old sacrifice would resolve the legal nature of sin. 
the old sacrifice, all of the goats and blood and everything, that would, sac- that, would, that would honor, resolve the legal nature of sin, but it didn't have the power to cleanse the conscience. Didn't have the power to cleanse the inner world. Only the sacrifices of Jesus is sufficient to cleanse the mind and the heart and the body. Uh, really quick, just for those of you that like to geek out on stuff, the English word for conscience comes from the Greek word, uh, best way I can pronounce it is suna de cease. It means this, the conscience, the English word that we get conscience means a knowing with. Our conscience is a knowing with, a co-knowledge with oneself or a being of one's own witness. Sort of, if you will, the chief witness testifying either to our innocence or our guilt. Think about this for just a second. The readers that are hearing this, that are reading this, maybe for the first time, are being invited to worship with a clear conscience. Up until this point, they're still under this old covenant and they're still learning and maybe they come to church with a guilty conscience. But this is the first time as they're hearing this, they go, whoa, no way, no way. I can worship in freedom. I can worship in full freedom, not to appease their guilt, not to worship out of duty, but because of what Christ has done, they can now worship him fully and freely. Jesus comes along, verse nine, makes a way for the worshiper to have a clear conscience. And then in verse 14, not just to have a clear conscience, but a cleansed conscience from acts that lead to death so that you and I may serve the living God. Okay, stay with me. Are you guys with me? I know there's a lot going on here. Um, these guys had a guilty conscience because they weren't following the rituals that they grew up with. They weren't following those places that they felt like really entrenched them in their religion. They weren't doing the sacrifices and all of that other kind of stuff, that old covenant stuff. And they were sort of feeling guilty about it. Like, and the writer is saying, no, don't go back to that stuff. Don't go back to that stuff. Be free from that. It may be this, some of you know this phrase. You guys know the phrase guilty conscience? Anyone here have a guilt? You don't have to raise your hand, but anyone here have a guilty conscience? Yes, <laughs> people who have a guilty conscience raise their hands. I love that, that's like me. I have a guilty conscience, yes. Um, I don't know if you have a guilty conscience or you know someone who has a guilty conscience. For those of us that have a guilty conscience, maybe. At an early age, our consciences are formed And I'm not sure about others who tend to have a guilty conscience, but I think I was actually trained or shamed, uh, trained to have a guilty conscience. The voices from outside began to shape and form how I would or should respond to things both good and bad. Maybe that's like some of you. And so this news is really, really good news, but it's really, really hard for people who have a guilty conscience to live into this freedom that Jesus has come to bring. Unlearning some of these ways had to be so difficult for these Jewish believers and really difficult for many of us too. Uh, For those of us that have grown up with a guilty conscience of not doing enough spiritual things or doing too many bad things. We've got to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And then to immerse ourselves in the baptismal truths, to be reminded again and again of the inauguration of the new covenant that because of his sacrificial love, we too can rest in his love and we can extend his love to those around us. We can live in the freedom that Jesus came for us to have. 
Verse 15, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. We are now free from the penalty of sin and we're now free from the bondage of sin. We're free from the sin of our past. We're free of the sin of our future and free from the sin of our present. Paul writes something similar to the church in Galatia. Galatians 5.1, it says this, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. He's saying the same thing that the writer of the Hebrews is saying. Be free and don't go back to those ways that lead to death. Don't go back to those ways of slavery. My friend Paula Skinner asked me once if I could describe Christianity in one word. If a friend asked you to describe Christianity in one word, what word would you use? Maybe you could tell the person sitting next to you real quick. If you could describe Christianity in one word, one, what would that one word be? Maybe you could tell the person, go ahead, tell the person what, do you, what comes to mind. I, I, a lot of words came to my mind, but I chose the word freedom. Freedom. Uh, Paula was also one who was raised with a guilty conscience. And she also came to a place where she realized it wasn't all about religion. It's about relationship. She realized that life in Christ has little to do with transaction and everything to do with transformation. And it was hard to get her head and heart around it. And just before Paula went to heaven, she began to understand the difference between duty and devotion. Freedom in Christ, it doesn't mean that you don't have to follow the rules and that you get to do everything that you want. It's actually the opposite. A couple of weeks ago, I used two examples. Um, I used the example of stewarding God's money or tithing, and I used the example of communion. And so I just want to use these two examples to kind of illustrate this a little bit. Because I'm free... I actually get to choose to embrace the full meaning of stewarding what God has given me, stewarding God's money. So tithing isn't something that I have to do. It's actually a way of me celebrating God's blessing. Communion is not some religious experience that I have to do, but each time that I come to the table, I'm reminded that there's a seat that's been saved for me by the sacrifice of Jesus and I can't wait to pull up a chair and celebrate. Paul says it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. But then he adds, don't get burdened again by that yoke of slavery. It's exactly what the writer of the Hebrew says. Don't fall on the trappings of the old law or on your guilty conscience thinking that you have to justify yourself or that you have to prove yourself or that your religiosity will somehow please God. Trust Christ's goodness and grace and follow him one step at a time. I've been thinking about this text a bunch this week. I've had a couple conversations about it. Christy and I have talked about it a bunch. I've been thinking about how free Jesus is, like how free Jesus was on the earth. He was so free on the earth and yet he was called to sacrifice. You and I are free. We're free in Christ and yet... We're called to sacrifice. 
Jesus lived in complete freedom. He lived and loved, if you will, in an ongoing active surrender. This whole text celebrates his freedom to choose sacrifice. I've been thinking about the implications for us. We've been talking about it. I don't know what it might look like for you and me, or uh, for you uh, in your family. Christy and I have been talking about it a bunch. What might it look like for us to be so free that we choose sacrifice? I'll stick with these two examples. The example of, um, the example of uh, tithing and the example of communion. Uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity gives us a picture of what it might look like in regard to giving. He writes, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid that only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, and amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not pinch, do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. What about communion? How might we be free to choose sacrifice when we think about communion? Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said these words. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. So if you're coming to the table, but as you're coming to take communion, you remember that a coworker or someone with a different political persuasion than you or a neighbor or a family member has something against you before coming to the table, go be reconciled to that brother or sister and invite them with you back to the table. That's freedom that chooses sacrifice. So let me just ask you, let's just pause here for a quick question. What might it look like for you? Where in your life might Jesus be inviting you to be so free that you choose sacrifice? What would it cost you, really? And how would it bless you? Maybe this is something that you can talk about at lunchtime or call a friend and think it through together. Where in your life might Jesus be inviting you to be so free that you choose sacrifice? Well, these are the next couple of verses. Verses 16 down through verse 22. In the case of a will, um, that's the thing that you read when someone dies, right? In the case of a will, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect 
while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to the people, he took the blood of calves together with the water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll and he sprinkled it on all the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So the old covenant goes into effect when the Levitical priests shed the blood of the animal substitutes and apply the blood to the covenant beneficiaries, right? The people of Israel. The new covenant goes into effect when God shed Jesus' blood and applied it to the beneficiaries, spiritually speaking. That's me and you. The whole thrust of this argument is that there's an intimate relationship between covenant and sacrificial blood. These are the next couple of verses. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. That was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Let's take a look at the last line there. So powerful. Jesus did all of this for us. It takes all of the pressure off. It takes all the pressure to perform, to manage, to control, to get it all right. Jesus entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. You don't have to appear on your own behalf. This is amazing to me. I don't have to appear on my own behalf, Jesus enters heaven itself to appear on my behalf in God's presence. You don't have to make your own case. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to say, see, I did this and I did this and I did this. Jesus is a witness and an advocate for you. He stands for you in God's presence. Here's how the chapter concludes. Verse 25. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. By the way of the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he's appeared once, once and for all, at the culmination of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. All of this is for you and me with two simple steps. Steps are to believe and to receive. All of this is for those who choose to believe that what Christ did is enough and to receive that gift of grace. At his ascension, Christ is formally installed as the high priest and he began his present work, his, he began his, his high priestly present work 
in lots and lots of ways, I just wanna highlight five ways real quick. Jesus represents you and me to the Father in five ways. First is this, that Jesus secures our acceptance with God for all of those who believe and receive. Secondly, Jesus obtains free access for us into God's presence. You don't have to do anything. He's already done it. You and I can step freely into God's presence just as we are right where we are. Thirdly, Jesus intercedes for us and he grants us help in our time of need. Matt shared a few minutes ago that we're in a time of need as a church, as a neighborhood, as a country, as a world. Jesus intercedes for us and he grants us help. Fourthly, Jesus mediates our prayers to the Father and the Father's strength back to us. So he hears our prayers and we are enabled by his strength. And then fifthly, Jesus will one day return to earth to reign. And at the end of this present life, Jesus will bless his people by bringing us deliverance into his eternal kingdom. In his freedom, Jesus chose sacrifice for you and me. What a savior. I'll uh, close with these verses from Romans chapter 12, verses one and two from the message paraphrase. It says this. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for being our ultimate sacrifice, for making it real easy for us to believe and receive. And yet for many of us, it's really hard, super hard, to fully believe and fully receive. So wherever we are this morning, thank you for meeting us where we are. For those this morning that feel conviction from the Spirit, I pray that you administer to those, enable them to hear your voice and not harden their heart. For those that don't know how to for those that don't know how to live differently than walking around with a guilty conscience, Spirit, I pray that you'd minister to them. Blow that lie away. Allow them to stand in your freedom. Father, thank you for holding all of this together, for holding all of us together. We give you praise. We give you praise. And in these moments now, I pray that you would help us to respond to you ways in which we've prepared for people to respond here or ways in which your spirit is just speaking and you want to invite people to respond, I pray that we would respond to your voice. For those that want to sing, God, help us to sing. For those that need prayer, help them to raise their hands and ask for prayer. For those that want to stand in your presence on behalf of others, give them 
the ability to intercede even now. For those that want to come and remember this sacrifice through the taking of communion, for those that want to come to the table, invite them, remind them that you know how tired they are, you know how hungry they are, you know how thirsty they are. And let them come and eat and drink and celebrate. Father, we thank you, we love you, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.